Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Thank you for gathering to uh, worship uh, together with us today. You know, uh, Mother's Day is always a challenging day um, to adequately express the full range of the human experience, and it is quite the range. Uh, For some people, this is a day of just unbridled joy. Uh, For others, it is a difficult day because uh, the mother that you had maybe was not the mother you wanted her to be or that she would have wanted to be. There are unfulfilled longings of motherhood. There are losses in motherhood. There are difficulties. And so we want to try to do our best um, to, to recognize and celebrate, but also remember the difficulties that go with it. And we want to encourage our mothers this morning, but also we want most of all to point everybody to Jesus Christ, which is what we try to do each week when we gather together for worship and is the purpose of our worship. And so we're going to, we're going to try our best to do that together this morning. Uh, many years ago, uh, my wife Erica and I were uh, sitting through one of those really uh, brutal timeshare pitches. Has anybody ever had one of those timeshare pitches? where you think they're just going to talk to you for a few minutes and try to convince you, but they end up separating you into two different rooms, and they handcuff you to the desk, and there's that, that mirrored glass there, and, and they ask you questions, and then they get in your face and say, I know you're lying. It was one of those kinds of timeshare pitches. And we were enduring the interrogation that was going on in exchange for the two or three days that we were going to be there. And the woman who was the first stage of our interrogation, and I do say stage because they sent several people to us along the way and increased the pressure as they went. But the first lady there was the good cop, and as she was interrogating us, one of her steps, the first steps that she took was to try to figure out what our financial picture was. And let me tell you, friends, it was not prosperous. Uh, Just having stepped out of seminary and working a fairly low-paying job at the time, we were not the highest candidates for the the timeshare purchase. But as she's asking, she asks me what, what I do for a living, and I explain it to her, and then she turns to... Erica and says, and what about you? What do you do for a living? And it was at that point that I don't remember, I don't remember how many years this ago. I think we just had one child. Maybe, maybe she was really, really young at the time. And Erica said to the lady, I'm a stay-at-home mom. And the lady her looked at her and said, well, that's okay. In a way that made you think, I don't think you think it's okay. <laughs> She said, that's okay, in a way that it made it seem like, don't worry, uh, things will start looking up for you. You may be able to find a job. You may be able to, to achieve some sort of marketable skill that you can use to contribute to the world. Erica had not said it in a way that indicated that she needed comfort about being a stay-at-home mom. But I, that, that, that story sticks in my mind because 
because the look that she gave to us while she was having this discussion with us uh, was one of a little bit of pity. So I want to ask the question this morning, what is the value of motherhood? What is its value? And I thought a good way to answer that question might be to go to a book that has such a profound foundational shaping for us. You were hoping, okay, it's a holiday, we're going to get to take a break from Genesis, and you're kind of right, but also kind of wrong, because we're going to stay in Genesis, and we're going to answer that question from the book of Genesis, because Genesis, after all, gives us the origin of motherhood. So how does Genesis shape our perspective on the value of motherhood? And I believe Genesis gives us two truths about the value of motherhood. Here's the first one. I believe that Genesis in the first place tells us that motherhood is a high calling. Rather than something to be pitied, rather than an obstacle to achieving all that you were really intended to be, moms, the Bible tells us in Genesis, gives us some clues that motherhood is a high calling. And I want to point out three clues within Genesis that point us in that direction. The first clue in Genesis that would point us to see motherhood as a high calling is this. It is what we might call the responsibility of dominion. The responsibility of dominion. We talked about this a little bit when we were in the very first two chapters of Genesis, and we have all sorts of of misconceptions, conceptions and sometimes misconceptions about what it was like at the beginning, and I think some of us have sometimes had this, been operating with this, this idea that at the very beginning, the earth was kind of like this, this uh, resort, and the whole earth is this big resort, and God plops the people, the first people that he makes, into the resort and says, have fun on the lazy river. The rest of your life, all of your life, it's going to be this grand vacation in this resort that I've given to you. But that's a little bit of a misconception. You see, God doesn't create people and place them into a resort for an eternal vacation. The Bible actually tells us that the, that the first human beings have a job. They have responsibilities within that creation. And theologians have referred to those responsibilities that they have within the creation as the dominion mandate. You may have heard me say that before. The dominion mandate. And we get that from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. The Bible says this. You can follow along these verses that we bounce around in in Genesis if you'd like. They'll also be on the screen behind me. But Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We don't have time to get into this in depth the way that we have in the past, but 
you might recall me saying that basically human, human beings were given the responsibility to make the whole earth Eden. There is a sense in which Eden was a template. It was a place of cultivation. It was a garden that God had made with specific boundaries. And God basically said, you've got this whole earth in front of you. Do this everywhere. Make the whole earth this, as I have done and provided the template for you. And there are several ways listed that one may have and exercise dominion over this earth and this responsibility to make the whole earth Eden. But one of those responsibilities was exclusive to the woman, and it is the role of childbearing. Childbearing is, is a, an exclusive role unique to women and is part of God's created purpose and responsibility to fulfill the dominion mandate. So that's one reason, that's one clue that would tell us that motherhood is a high calling. There's a second clue that I want to point out to you. The second clue is the fulfillment of God's promises. The fulfillment of God's promises. God gives humanity the responsibility to make the whole earth Eden, but that's not exactly working out, is it? We are not living in Eden in, by any stretch of the imagination. And the reason that the whole earth has not become Eden is because the whole earth has been infiltrated and cursed and broken by sin. When the first humans plunged the earth into sin through their disobedience to God, they experience the curse of sin in the creation. And interestingly, one of the literal pain points of the curse unique to woman that is related specifically to her unique ability to contribute to the dominion mandate is the fact that there is going to be pain in childbearing. Women know this to be true. I've had some pretty bad colds. And so I can identify with that in some way. Uh, some really nasty colds that have kept me down for a couple of days even. Uh, but no, women, women experience the pain of childbirth. You have never watched any depiction of that on TV where it's just this calm scene. Because it might not be always like it is on TV, but it's also not a calm scene. This is an experience of the curse. But the Bible also tells us that there is a blessing also in childbearing that remains. As, as, as God is cursing Satan at the very beginning, he says this in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. He says, I will put enmity, enmity is a word for hostility, it's a word for conflict, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So, so God is picturing this line of descendants, this war between humanity and Satan who desires the, the death of humanity. 
So between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this verse has been called, a fancy word, the Proto-Evangelium. And if you're familiar with that word, the Proto-Evangelium, that phrase means first gospel. This is, this is the first mention of the gospel in all of Scripture. It's mentioned in uh, an embryonic form, if you will, and it then takes the entirety of the unfolding of Scripture to come to term. So when we think about what's going to bring Satan his final defeat, one of the things that's going to be a contributing factor, that was going to be a contributing factor to the final defeat of Satan is that a woman is going to bear a child. So you just think about the implications of that, that God would choose to bring about the defeat of Satan and sin through a woman bearing a child who would put his heel firmly on the head of the serpent. The fulfillment of God's promises is going to come in part through mothers and through a mother as the Bible promises. And as we're reading through the book of Genesis, we see that God's covenant promises continue to be connected to motherhood in a very important way. Concerning Sarah, God says this in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 16. He's speaking with Abraham and he says, I will bless her and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. One of the promises that God has given Abraham is that he is going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the shore, and that is going to require mothers. They are going to play an active role as participants in God's blessing and promises. And so, the fulfillment of God's saving promises are intimately connected with motherhood which is a clue to us of its high calling. It's more than something that is just okay. It's a great calling. There is a third clue that points us to the high calling of motherhood that I see as I'm reading through Genesis. And this one is less explicit in Genesis and more just something that we, that we notice as we work our way through the book. It's this, the formative influence of mothers. When you think about it, mothers play a huge role in the book of Genesis. They are not background props. They are not just part of the scenery where other real action can, can happen. They're, they're real players in the book of Genesis, and you can see their formative influence on every page. I mean, you think about a, a woman like Sarah 
who has struggled with, with doubting God's promises the entirety of her life. God has made her a promise that she is going to have a child, and she waits 25-some years to have it, and those 25 years are a, a struggle with faith, struggle to, to believe God, struggle, struggle to take God at His word, and even there is some, some, some laughter that takes place as she thinks about the ludicrous idea that in her older age, God would still bless her, that, that God would be able to keep His promises to her. And she actually names her son Isaac, which means what? He laughs. And she names him, he laughs, and says something along the lines of, now everyone who comes after me will, will remember this and laugh with me. And now we're not talking about bitter, jaded laughter. We're talking about a laugh of faith. Can you believe what God can do? We've got... Mothers like Hagar, who, if you ever want to, to see a picture of the fierceness of motherhood, you look at Hagar. Hagar is, is drawn into an illegitimate way of trying to, to achieve God's promise, and she has a son named Ishmael, but there's always conflict between Hagar and Sarah because Abraham and Sarah try to go about producing this, this heir in a way that is not God's way. And, and now there's a real life here that's not just a pawn or a prop. And you look at the life of Hagar, and she is constantly fighting for her son. Even to the point when she thinks she's going to lose him, and so she goes away so she doesn't have to hear him crying, doesn't have to hear him die, but can't can't, uh, uh, can't bring herself to, to, to get more than a bow shot away, the Bible says. And what does the angel of the Lord do? He appears to a mother and says, I've heard your cry for your son. And even though he isn't the son of promise, a nation is going to come from him. That's a, a picture of the tenacity of a woman fighting for her child. We have Isaac's wife, Rebecca, playing favorites with her twin boys. And just the little snapshot that we have of, of their lives together, and we certainly don't know the whole thing, but just the, the little snapshots that we have of their lives together would indicate that Rebecca actually magnifies all of Jacob's worst qualities. And you can, see the, you can see the wreckage in their family as parents play favorites, as they cater to a child that they prefer over the other child, and as, and as Rebecca enables a son to steal from his father and her husband. You can see the formative influence that she plays on Jacob's life. And of course, we can see the dysfunction between the foremothers of Jacob's family that produce 12 plus children for him out of rivalry, rivalry with each other to see who can have the most, who can produce the most children and thus have the most love. 
If that isn't a recipe for a dysfunctional family, I don't know what is, but you can see the dysfunction through all of their lives. We're going to continue seeing it as we go through Genesis. The point that I'm simply making is that, that motherhood, mothers are major players in the book, and you can very much see the formative influence for good or bad that mothers have. Now, hopefully, in just talking through those things, so we're asking the book of Genesis, how should we view motherhood? Genesis is telling us, I believe, that motherhood is a high calling. And we can see that because of the responsibility of, of women in childbearing to have dominion. We can see that through the fulfillment of God's saving promises through the work of mothers. And we can see it through the major role that mothers play in their children's lives. And so, I say this usually every Mother's Day, or at least I try to say it every Mother's Day. If I forgot a couple of Mother's Day, I'm going to make up for it today. Moms, you are doing important work. We want you to know, I want you to know, our church wants you to know, but most importantly, God wants you to know that the work you are doing is valuable work. It is worthy work. It is excruciatingly difficult work. We are thankful for the work that you do. You show strength in your work, even though the only thing that you can see sometimes is all of your failures. We just want to tell you, don't look at all the things you constantly feel like you're failing at. <laughs> we want you to lift up your head and see the many good things that God is enabling you to do. You do it imperfectly. We all do everything imperfectly. But we want you to know that you can hold your head high as you serve God in a high, high calling. There's a second truth, though. I said there were, were two truths that I wanted to point out. There is a second truth about motherhood that I believe Genesis teaches us about the value of motherhood. Perhaps you have heard this statement before. Perhaps you have have said this statement before or had it said to you, but it's, it's this statement. Motherhood is a woman's highest calling. Maybe you've heard that before. Motherhood is a woman's highest calling. Now that statement elevates the status of motherhood, right? by the, what we just talked about from Genesis. It does, it does justice to that point about the importance of motherhood. But there is just one problem with that statement, and it's a significant problem. You know what the problem is. It's not true. That's its biggest problem. You're like, well, that Mother's Day sermon took a turn. <laughs> Before you throw anything 
at me. Let me talk about it with you. I believe that the book of Genesis teaches that motherhood is not a woman's highest calling. Here's one of the problems with that statement. That statement requires us to take value from some women so that we can give value to other women. Do you see that? It tells young girls growing up that they will, they will never truly have a full expression of their feminine humanity unless they have the experience of motherhood. So there's, there's, there's a, a sense in which there's something outside of, of all of our control. Okay, we're not able to guarantee that we'll be, any of us will be married or, or have children. We can't guarantee any of those things. And yet we tell people that the only way you'll be able to fully experience the, the full expression of feminine humanity is through motherhood. It tells singles, single women, that they have not really truly arrived at adulthood until they have been married and until they've had children. And the church sometimes has a problem with the way that we treat singles as if the singles are people who are living in an extended adolescence. And so we even speak to them sometimes with a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a pandering tone. It's like, well, when you when you are married and when you have a child, then you'll then you'll really then you'll be welcome to the big show. Then you'll be able to sit at the big kids' table. And a lot of singles have trouble in the church because of that. Their singleness is not valued because we have taken an expression of femininity and put that on the pedestal of our highest value. This statement tells, we've got to keep it real here, it tells women with same-sex desires who have chosen a life of celibacy that they can never truly be fully female. as if we needed to put more obstacles between us. And it tells women who have been married but don't, still, but don't have children yet, you're, you're almost there. You haven't fully arrived yet, but, but you're, you're almost there. And of course, a statement like this leads to a lot of disappointment. When you have placed motherhood on a pedestal that high, the pedestal can't bear the weight. It can lead to disappointment. When, when a woman finally has children... And it's not everything that she hoped it was going to be. 
I thought it was going to be this magical thing. And this is, this is not magic. This is rough. We aren't the moms we hope we would be. It can't bear the weight of the statement because our children sometimes go different directions than we've hoped. Sometimes, inevitably, when children grow up and move out, a mom can go through an identity crisis because she's just been stripped of her highest calling. I peaked. Now, of course, you never stop being a mother, but you're not a mother in the same way, or at least if you want your child to have a good life, you're not going to try to... Maybe that's a word for some of you. Why don't you pull your nose out? (laughs) If they want advice, they'll ask for it. But you're not a mother in the same way. And so now, now, now we're upended. Because this thing I waited my whole life to have, and everybody told me it's going to be over like this. Well, they were right. It's over like this. Now what? Who am I? What do I do? So I believe we say things like this with the utmost good intentions. So I'm not attacking our motives in making a statement like that. But what I am saying is that what that inadvertently does is actually serves to make an idol of motherhood. Now, we might think, well, you can't do that. (laughs) Motherhood's a good thing. Absolutely. That's why I led the sermon with the high calling of motherhood. But most of our idols are not things that are bad in and of themselves. Most of the things that we idolize, most of the things that we look to for for our satisfaction and enjoyment are good things that have been made ultimate things. That's the vast majority of our idolatry. Good things that get put on the top of that pedestal and become ultimate things. And then the word of the Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me. So, if motherhood is a woman's highest calling, then the Apostle Paul's recommendation for his own preference for singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is in direct opposition to the teaching of Scripture. And I don't think it is. You can look it up. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and the Apostle Paul says, really, I wish you could all be like I am, single. That would be my recommendation, he says. Or we would have to say something like, Jesus, a lifelong single celibate, never truly experienced the full, uh, full range of masculinity. That's a major theological error. <laughs> that, now we've just cut out the fact that Jesus isn't fully human. If expression of masculine or feminine sexuality is integral to our humanity. Okay, we unravel a lot of stuff when we start messing with this, and we put things out of order 
of the way the Bible would put it. Okay, so Matt, you've ruined my morning. Uh, what, what is the highest calling of women? And uh, I've got a couple answers to that question that I think arise from Genesis that I want to look at briefly for a couple of minutes. And here's the first one. The highest calling of a woman, again, focusing on Genesis, is in the first place to be human. Now, I'm not being cute, okay? Because I can feel the duh. We had that one. Thank you. But women, I want you to hear this, and I'm speaking, to, speaking specifically and directly to women today, but you can reverse all of this stuff for men. Women, your value before God in creation does not begin with your, you, the unique contributions of your gender, but in the common experience of our shared humanity. That's important. You have value because you, as a human being, are part of the crown jewel of creation. Again, I refer back briefly to things that I've already talked about at the beginning of Genesis, but the way the Genesis story is structured in chapter 1 is that there is this this ascent taking place in the creation week that is moving towards a pinnacle, an ascent moving towards a pinnacle. And what is the pinnacle? It's not trees. It's not dogs. It's not one of my favorite animals, red pandas. The pinnacle of creation is humanity. We know that because everything drives towards that, and the most space is dedicated to that in the creation account. The, the, the material is clearly in arranged and say that, that here is the top, humans, the world that God has created. And to humanity, God has given the, the many and various gifts of personhood. Okay, animals have personality. They can express some sort of range of emotion, and I don't know how all that stuff works, but it's out there. But they're not persons in the way human beings are persons. There are many gifts of personhood. There's, God has given us the gift of language so that God is able to communicate revelation to us. God wants us to know Him and has built in the capacity for us to receive from Him. And we have the ability to communicate with each other. We have moral agency, which means that we are moral beings who have, who have uh, uh, right and wrong choices before us. They're, your, your cats in your neighborhood don't have right or wrong choices before them. They just do. If one cat gets in a fight with another one, you don't call the cops and say, we got a domestic going on out here. Can you send out a car? It's not a moral choice. They have moral agency. They have, we have intelligence. 
the ability to learn. We are relational beings created for relationship with God, created for a unique relationship with each other. We have built into us as persons. We have, uh, we have wills. We have desires. We see something that we want to go for and we pursue. And you know what that's like to see something and to want to go get it. We have been given the gift of an appreciation for beauty. We can see the arrangement of things. A sun rise or set, look at it and appreciate its aesthetic appearance and then, and then create things and make things that are beautiful. So we have been given these gifts of personhood. We are part of creation that Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 declares is very good. And so your calling as a woman is not first motherhood, although that is a high calling. It is to be fully human with all the goodness that comes from being fully human. Secondly, not only, not only is our high calling to be human, but closely connected to it, it is to be an image bearer. It is to be an image bearer. One of the key foundational concepts found in the opening chapters of Genesis is this idea of the imago Dei, the image of God. And the Bible makes this point in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Again, we're reviewing, but what does it mean to be created in God's image? Well, I've said in the past, to be created in God's image is to be given the high privilege of reflecting and representing God on earth. There's a sense in which humanity is, is a mirror, reflecting the image and likeness of God in creation back to Him. And we are representatives of God in creation. He shows us in the template of Eden what it looks like to exercise dominion, and then says, go and do that everywhere else. So we're given tasks like being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth because God's vision is for His creation to be full of image bearers. So we can be mothers and fathers. But there are other aspects to the dominion mandate. We are to subdue the earth and to have dominion over it. And I've said in the past that subduing carries the idea of harnessing and cultivating. Okay, if you've, got a, if you've got a plot of land that is overgrown, it is not producing anything, it is not necessarily beautiful, then one of the things that we can bring to that is a harnessing and a cultivating of that piece of land so the land can be cleared it can have things planted in it. It can 
have those things grow and be tended. It can produce fruit, vegetables, things that can, can feed humanity, and it can have flowers and things that are for our more aesthetic senses, things that are just beautiful. They exist to make it look beautiful, to say beautiful three times in a row. Harnessing and cultivating. And there are unique ways that we contribute to these tasks as male and female, but there are also ways, and perhaps many ways, in which we contribute to this task simply as human beings and image bearers. So ladies, the highest calling of a woman's life is not actually motherhood. And listen to me carefully. I am not saying that our vision for motherhood is too big. Okay? I'm not saying that our vision for motherhood is too big. What I am saying is that perhaps our vision for womanhood is too small. That's what I'm saying. Women are partners with men who together are the image of and likeness of God, and our highest calling is to live out our humanity before Him, to be everything that we, He has made us to be, and to use every gift He has given to harness and cultivate and fill the world around us. And so, we honor motherhood as a great and high calling that has dignity and value, but we also women who honor women who are artists, and astrophysicists, and algebra teachers, and astronauts, and athletes, and attorneys. All of these things are taking our God-given gifts and using them in creation for its good and for its beautification and for the blessing of the people around us. So if God has given you the blessing of being a mother, you thank him for it. But if he has not, you are not somehow on some sort of second tier where the highest thing that you could ever be is forever elusive. The Bible doesn't create those categories. There are a million ways to reflect God on earth, unique to the exact person that he has created you with great intentionality, to be. And so you be that woman in all of its dimensions. There's an author by the name of Jen Oshman who says, your highest calling in mine is not limited to a temporary role here on earth. Marriage and motherhood are fleeting. They cannot deliver the soul satisfaction we long for. Our spouses and children will falter and fail. They will never give us what only Jesus can because you and I were created by Jesus for Jesus. This is the Jesus part of the sermon, in case you're waiting for us to get here. This is the point. You and I were created by Jesus for Jesus. means that our highest calling as human beings is absolutely connected to everything we are in Him 
whether we are married or single or an attorney or an astronaut or a mother. So, perhaps there are some women here this morning, and maybe you need to confess the fact that you maybe have inadvertently made an idol of motherhood. Perhaps you have crafted your entire identity out of the fact that you are a mom. And I just want to tell you that's a dangerous thing to craft one's identity on. It is a dangerous thing for us to craft our identity on anything that we do, any capability that we have or role that we play, because every single piece of that can be stripped away from you. Your identity is first and foremost, the bedrock of it is who you are in Christ, and that can't be touched. Or perhaps you've crafted your entire identity as a disappointment that you can't or won't be a mom. Because it seems like that's it. That's it. That's the highest. And I understand if that's if that's how it's been presented to you, the highest, then it's a great disappointment to not be able to have the highest thing that you could ever have. Or perhaps you got to the pinnacle. And the view wasn't as great as you thought it was going to be. Motherhood, or being an astronaut, or an athlete, or an attorney, none of those things can bear the weight of our hopes and expectations. No matter what you achieve when you get there, it's never enough. And it never fully satisfies the way that we would hope. So let's commit to a high view of motherhood. But let's put motherhood in its proper place. As Oshman said, we're created by Jesus and for Jesus. So let me say this as I close with you this morning. Maybe you're here with us this morning and you're not a Christian. You can be a great mother without being a Christian. There's lots of, lots of great moms out there who aren't Christians. You may have one. You can be a great artist without being a Christian. You can be a great astrophysicist without being a Christian. Because you've got the image of God baked into your very DNA you can get a long way without him. But none of us will ever be anything that God, everything that God fully intended us to be apart from Jesus. And one of the dangers that could happen is we could be the great mother, artist, astrophysicist, and in the words of Jesus, gain the whole world and lose our souls. 
You see, because of the sin that I mentioned earlier in the message today, every one of us is actually, though we are image bearers, we are, are shattered mirrors. Have you ever looked at your reflection in a shattered mirror? It's distorted. Because that's what sin does. It distorts. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus and why everything is so importantly connected to Jesus is that Jesus restores broken image bearers. In fact, the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10 that because of Jesus Christ, the new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. When you come to Jesus in repentance and faith, He begins the work of restoring the image of God in you so that you are everything He fully intends you to be in its proper place in Him. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, we would invite you to trust Him this morning. In just a few moments, we're going to sing a song together. If you are a Christian... You would like to know what it means to be a Christian. You would like to talk with that. We're going to have people up here. While that song is going, you can come up and talk to somebody. If you are a mother, a woman in our church, and the Spirit of God has dealt with you about something that we've talked about this morning, some sort of idolatry in your heart, talk to the Lord about it. If you need to talk to somebody about it with the Lord, there are people here to do that. Let's pray together. Lord, as has already been said this morning, we're grateful for the many good, godly mothers you have put in our church family. I pray that you bless them that they would know that what they do is valuable in our eyes and even more importantly, valuable in your eyes. But Lord, we are so prone to take the good gifts that you've given us and make them ultimate gifts. And so for any of us, whether man or woman, father or mother, if, if anyone has had some idolatry revealed in our hearts this morning, Rather than chafing against it, I pray that you would help us to go up to that pedestal, to to remove that idol from its pedestal, and restore Jesus to his proper place. We pray these things in his name. Amen.